Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's podcast, you'll first hear an interview between Acton's Director of Communications, John Caritas, and Phil Sotok, who's a management consultant with DPMC. John and Phil's discussion is a first look at our new Business Effects series, examining purpose and ethics in the workplace. Then I'll be discussing the newly proposed steel and aluminum tariffs on our Econ Quiz series with Dave Hebert, professor of economics at Aquinas College. Lastly, on Upstream, Bruce Edward Walker will be discussing the Beat Poets with Robert Inchausti, professor of English at California State Polytechnic University and editor of a newly released book on the vision of the Beat Poets. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to Business Effects, a look at social enterprise. I'm your host, John Caritas. We're introducing a new feature today, Business Effects, which takes a look at how businesses, entrepreneurs, managers make an impact on the culture. My guest today is Phil Sotak, who is a management consultant with DPMC. And uh, Phil, welcome to the podcast and our initial Business Effects show. John, thanks for having me. Uh, Phil, tell us a little bit before we get into the topic today, which is engagement in the workplace. Tell us a little bit about your business background and what DPMC does in the whole universe of management consulting. Well, I, um, you know, I grew up in a in a family of engineers. Um, started my career at Prince Corporation, moved to Chrysler, uh, and in two thousand eight started a company called Venture Source. Uh, and Venture Source is tier one, tier two uh, supplier to the automotive industry. We do uh, various components for interiors uh, of vehicles. Um, but late last year, we, uh, we started a consultancy that was part of a vision that we had casted a number of years back that we wanted to help uh, teach and bring our business practices to, uh, to other businesses. And so that, that kind of led us down the path of what is DPMC, which is the consultancy. So what is the, uh, the uh, initiative, what is the motive for focusing and specializing on this business of engagement in the workplace, how, how employees derive meaning and satisfaction out of their work? Well, there's, um, you know, there's a lot being published uh, recently about purpose in, in the workplace, and you hear about purpose-driven companies. Um, there was a study that was recently done um, through LinkedIn and Gallup that essentially said 66% of uh, the U.S. workforce would fall into this category they called unfulfilled. So at DPMC, what we, uh, what we try to do is connect the person's uh, individual mission or purpose with the purpose of the company. So um, we believe, and there's uh, empirical data to show that um, when organizations find purpose, um, that they perform that their individuals perform better, their teams perform better, and on a whole, uh, the organization performs better. So that's what we're in the business of doing, is trying to help organizations find that link, find that connection. Um, you know, Many organizations today have a purpose statement, they have a mission statement. Um, it's on the wall, it's publicized. Plank it's on, on the wall, right? It's, it's on their websites. But um, quite frankly, it's a, it's a challenge for organizations to take that purpose statement and make a connection with the individual. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, and when we do that, when we make that connection, there's a, um, it's a powerful connection. 
and that leads to higher performing people. Okay, Phil, I got to ask you the question. I read a lot of mission statements, and many of them are eloquent. Uh, they make sense. But really, how many people use mission statements as their guide to get through the work uh, they do day in and day out? Well, probably not many. I mean, there's, there's many uh, well-intended organizations that take the time to craft a purpose, a vision, or a mission statement, and that's typically done you know, at a leadership level. It's an off-site type thing, um, and they cast a vision for their future, and that's great. Um, the challenge comes then is taking that back to the organization and how do we cascade that through the organization? How do we help people connect their personally, individually, themselves uh, to that mission? So let me put it this way. I, you know, we could come up with a great mission statement or a purpose or a why um, in the organization, no doubt, but that doesn't mean that I as an employee um, am motivated by it. It might be very inspiring to me. And I might look at that and say, wow, that's, that's really good and that's something I want to be a part of. But if I lack the motivation, if I lack the understanding of how to connect uh, to that, if the mission statement is somewhat abstract uh, to me in that regard, then, then it kind of falls flat at that point. Um, and I think that's what many organizations are challenged by. Um, you know, a large pur purpose statement or a mission statement is somewhat superficial if we don't individually understand how we can contribute or what our job to be done is relative to that mission statement. And that's a very powerful connection that still, I believe, needs to be made in the workplace. Well, I'm taking a look at this Gallup poll, and it's, it's pretty striking. Less than one-third of U.S. workers were engaged in their jobs in 2014. This survey came out in January 2015. But you go down and look at the numbers... Um, engaged, not engaged, the number of workers actively disengaged, according to Gallup in 2014, 17.5%. That's really shocking, isn't it? If you're trying to run a business and enhance productivity and you have a large cohort of employees who are simply not plugged in. Yeah, it's alarming. Um, and I think it's part of why people are saying that this is a crisis because you have you not only have, uh, you know, let's say 50% of the workforce that would be um, unengaged, when you have 17% that are actively disengaged, you could argue that they're, um, in a sense, working against the direction of the organization, that they're actually discontributing to, if that's a word, to the direction of the organization. So that's a problem that needs to be solved. All right, let me play devil's advocate here. There's probably an old school frame of mind that says, well, I don't understand all of this. If you're getting a good paycheck, you've got a steady job, company's doing okay, that's your engagement. I don't need any of this talk about fulfillment and whatnot. What would your response be to that? Well, you know, you there's this, there's this thing called motivation, right? right. And so we can talk about um, different levels of motivation and, and, and depths of motivation, but um, when a person finds motivation, when a person finds a deeper sense of meaning in their work, um, they start to fulfill themselves or self-actualize. They start to become um, what they were meant to be. And that's, a, that's what we're trying to find. We're trying to find... Um, that place or we're trying to meet the person in that place where we can start to help them 
understand what their contribution is. And when we help them understand what their contribution is, then that that's the connection they make with the greater whole, the greater purpose, and we start to get to deeper senses of motivation and deeper senses of meaning. So, yeah, I mean, we can talk about, you know, pay. Um, it's, you know, maybe that's a substitute for, um, you know, not understanding necessarily what your purpose is uh, in the workplace, you know. And so we substitute this superficial thing and we say, hey, I'm happy with pay. I want more pay and that's going to satisfy me. Um, but I think in the long run, what, what really satisfies people is when they find that sense of meaning. Is there a generational aspect to this thing? Do millennials, for example, look at a purpose in, different, in a different light than, say, baby boomers? Um, are they less satisfied with, say, status markers or uh, simply money? Uh, do they want, is there a sense that they want more purpose? I think there's a sense that they want more purpose, but it's unclear. I've seen both sides of the argument where um, you'll see articles that are professing that millennials um, you know, are the ones that we need to target with purpose in the workplace. Um, but I've also seen studies that show that goes across the board. It's not limited to millennials. It's, you know, the, the percentage differences between millennials and baby boomers, people of my, you know, our age in the 50s and 60s really aren't that different. Like what it's saying is what people want at work doesn't really change in that generational gap. But we, we have this perception that it's only the millennials that are seeking purpose in the workplace. Right. It's really everybody that's seeking purpose and meaning in the workplace. Yeah, we've all heard the stories about people who dread going to work in the morning, but yet they do it for years. I mean, that's a pretty awful fate, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I do, I do believe that millennials have a keen understand, um, um, a better understanding of maybe what they're searching for, right? So they do have this idea that there is something meaningful out there and they want a piece of that. Yeah. You worked in manufacturing at pretty serious and large-scale firms. Is there a different approach with someone who's a, maybe an hourly worker and is on the factory floor and performing re repetitive functions at a machine than it is someone who's maybe a middle manager? Then you have people who are in upper management. Do you do you have to zero in on the nature of the work itself in many cases? Yeah, I do believe um, you have to. There's a there's a theory called management by objectives that has been, um, you know, was published years ago by Peter Drucker, um, and that's you know kind of a post industrial revolution management theory type thing that um, is great, and we've run our companies very successfully with that. Um, but it also leads to some dysfunction. It leads to, um, you know, essentially undergunning your objectives or putting your objectives out there so in such a way that you can meet them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it also leads to managers, um, you know, kind of putting that objective over the over the workforce to say you need to meet this. And um, and so what we're trying to do with purpose is take you know, objectives are a means to an end. It's a great way to get to the end, but the objective isn't the end. The end is this idea of meaning at work and purpose at work, right? And so helping the person understand what their quote-unquote job to be done is relative to the bigger picture is unique to every person. It can be unique to the CEO 
as it can be to the person working at a workstation on on the factory floor. But articulating that and helping that person understand their personal and unique contribution and not only just understanding that contribution, but starting to understand that this is what I can do. Like, I'm good at this, right? I should be doing this. That starts to drive passion because when you start to contribute in a way that you know you're good at contributing in this way and that you're adding value, then passion starts to happen. Give me an example of how you may have affected a change, and a lot of this is attitude, I'm sure, and a different way to look at your work. How does DPMC and you and others there, how do you go about getting through to people and helping them find this purpose in concrete ways? Um, We have, what we focus on is what we call the personal mission. So if you have a mission of, um, you you know, your organization has a mission, right? And it's a big mission, whatever that might be. Um, We really start our focus at the human level, at the personal level. So we have workshops that we do, for example, that will take this person or a person through um, a series of exercises that help them start to articulate what their mission might be. In our case, um, at my company, for example, um, we start with a legacy statement and we have each employee write out their legacy, which is a one or two page deal. Um, and then that leads into articulating a personal mission. Now, that personal mission, in our case, we don't ask them to write a mission specific to the business. We just say write a mission, figure out what your personal mission is. Then we can start to try to connect that to the organization. And if there's a connection there, a genuine connection, then um, then that's a positive thing. If that sounds pretty powerful if they can align the personal with the corporate. Well, it's, there's, it's, it is powerful, but it's, it's, what's really powerful about it is it, it's, it's an exercise in self-knowledge first and foremost, right? We have to understand who we are, and it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or, or you know, in the factory, so to speak. We have to understand who we are, and we have to understand who we are relative to other people. So that exercise of personal mission is... Um, it's a personal thing. It can be pretty emotional. I've seen people get pretty um, choked up through that process because they start to unravel um, aspects of their life that now all of a sudden they, they kind of look at differently uh, and through a different perspective. And so... Maybe um, for the first time in many cases, right? Yeah, and for... Well, possibly for the in first way, time, yeah. but certainly in a business yeah, setting where right. somebody's actually um, being Say, hey, vulnerable. there's a connection here. Wow, yeah, yeah. yeah. There must be some very concrete, tangible benefits for the business as a whole when you affect this kind of transformation purpose at work. Yeah, there are. There's the, the ones that you would hope for and expect, um, higher performance, higher profitability. Um, there's also positive outcomes in people. So there's you know a lot being said nowadays with regard to purpose and specifically how purpose driven organizations um, perform at higher levels. Um, And years ago, this was just an interesting idea, but now we have empirical data that suggests when organizations are adept at cascading purpose throughout the entire organization, not just among, you know, the top leadership team, but you take that all the way through the, you know, all levels of the organization, so to speak, the outcomes uh, are very positive. And why? Because when, when that cascades throughout the organization, you start to see, um, you know, 
motivate higher motivated people. You start to see positivity in your workforce. You see, start to see people that are taking initiative, um, that are holding themselves accountable, that feel empowered, uh, and the sense of dignity. Um, and not only this, but they go home every night feeling this accomplishment and pride in their work. So there's the tangibles, the things that you would hope for, and the intangibles. But the intangibles feed the tangibles, right? right? So when you get this critical mass of people who are positive and performing at this level, then the outcome is icing on the cake, so to speak. Yeah, really. And uh, boy, a much uh, better experience getting up in the morning and going to work, I would imagine, huh? Yeah, and that really uh, is the aim and goal. Well, very interesting. Um, This has been a great conversation, a great kickoff to Business Effects. If you're interested in learning more about DPMC, their website is at dpmc.us. And Phil, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone, and welcome to EconQuiz, where we interview an economist on an economics-related issue circulating in the news and examine the ways the issue could be understood or misunderstood by the public today. My name is Caroline Roberts, and today's topic is tariffs. They've become a hot-button issue following Trump's announcement late this past February, saying he would impose hefty tariffs on imported steel and aluminum to protect U.S. producers. To help explain the subject a bit more for us, today's guest is Professor of Economics at Aquinas College, Dave Hebert. Thanks for coming on the show today, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Trump said the tariffs will safeguard jobs, but many are saying it will destroy jobs um, for a lot of people, including some in the auto and oil industries. So to first jump into our conversation, I want to define our terms. What exactly is a tariff? Is it just basically another word for a tax? Yeah, that's a great question. So any tariff is just going to be a tax on imported goods. So in the U.S. with steel, you know, we obviously have some steel producers that produce steel domestically. And we must also be importing steel from other countries. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about having a tariff. And so what a tariff is going to do is it's going to tax all of the foreign producers of steel on steel sold in the U.S. Okay. So what do you make of the tariffs that Trump um, is planning on implementing pretty soon here? What is your opinion on them? Yeah, so Trump's tariffs are actually really big. 25% on steel, 15% on aluminum. Those are very big numbers, and they will have a big effect. I think his main goal is to go after China uh, with these steel tariffs and try to go after their industry for you know supposedly unfair practices and such. But I think I read somewhere that China only exports like 4% of their steel to the U.S. So the effect on China is going to be very small. The effect on Canada, Germany, and other countries in Europe, which are our allies in a lot of aspects, is going to be much, much bigger. As a result, the GOP has recently gathered to discuss a bill that would, in their hope, thwart the new tariffs. So what is your thoughts on the whole trade war conversation? Do you think that it's legitimate concern? Yeah, I've always kind of had a problem with viewing this as like a trade war. It seems just disingenuous to any soldier who's ever been in an actual war to call trade policies somehow warlike. You know, I've never seen like a trade bullet being shot. I've never heard of any, you know, con- uh, casualties in the trade war and like the great trade war, world trade war two or whatever. Uh, so it seems a little disingenuous to call this a war. 
what a tariff will do is it raises the price of all foreignly produced or or uh, foreign produced steel or whatever good we're going to you know slap a tariff on what that has the effect of doing is raising prices for the domestic country and so really the interesting thing about a, a trade war in this aspect is basically saying uh, you know, Europe, let's say, is responding to the president's calls for a tariff on steel by saying, okay, we're going to raise prices for our consumers on your goods. Ha ha ha, we're going to win this. And that just seems like the opposite of a good idea. There's just no reason, once, once one country enacts a tariff, imposing a retaliatory tariff doesn't really do any good for your country at all either. Tariffs in general don't do good for each country. All they do is make the good more expensive, right? And so what we're really just seeing is countries arguing over how we can hurt ourselves. Mm -hmm. How have the other countries, do you know, reacted to Trump's tariffs? Yeah, I think the European Union has threatened to enact a tariff on uh, Levi jeans and I think a few other things that America exports to Europe. Um, you know, what effect those will have on our economy is is up for debate. Uh, but at the end of the day, all they're really doing is threatening to make products more expensive for their own citizens, right? Because that's the ultimate effect of a tariff is to just make the thing more expensive. It's a tax. It makes things more expensive. Now, it comes with, you know, maybe a short-run benefit of increased jobs in that industry. So we could expect to see domestic steel producers increase their production maybe hire some more people, uh, at least in the short run. But in the long run, the sort of unseen effects, to harken back to Friedrich Bastiat, the long run effects will be more expensive steel and more expensive steel or products that use steel. So we should expect the auto workers to suffer. We should expect in Grand Rapids the beer industry to suffer since we use aluminum for all of our cans. We should expect basically any industry that uses steel as an input to suffer from this. And so those jobs are real. They'll be lost due to the increased expenses and due to people buying fewer cars, fewer cans of beer, and fewer anything with steel and aluminum. So those are sort of the trade-offs. Will we have more steel jobs or steel producing jobs? Probably, at least for a little bit. But we'll have fewer auto working jobs and fewer other jobs that rely on using steel and using steel more cheaply. In this situation, do you think that another bill would be helpful? Yeah. So I would argue that, you know, any bill that's going to reduce tariffs is going to be a good thing. So if Trump wants to enact 25 percent on steel and Congress and the GOP are able to lower that to 10, 15 or whatever they can get it down to, that's a better situation than having 25 percent. The best situation, though, would be to have a 0% tariff. All right, Dave. Well, thank you very much for coming in today. Yeah, thank you. And this is Caroline Roberts for Radio Free Acton. Hello, and welcome to the upstream segment of the Radio Free Acton podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. And today we're going to be talking with Robert Inchausti, who is Professor Emeritus of English at California State Polytechnic University, and he is the editor of three collections of the work of Thomas Merton, and is also the author of five previous books, including The Ignorant Perfection of Ordinary People, and he has a new book out that he is the editor of, and it is called Hard to Be a Saint 
in the city. And it's not about Bruce Springsteen, believe it or not. It's about the spiritual vision of the beats. And by beats, we mean the beat poets and writers such as Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Michael McClure, and William Burroughs. So uh, welcome, Robert. How are you today? Oh, thank you. I'm very well. Thanks Great. for calling. Well, we had a wonderful phone conversation just the other day, and we uh, both talked about the the highs and the lows of the beat writers. And uh, just before we, we turned the mics on, we were discussing how beat poetry and beat literature is part of the grand American literary continuum. So why don't you speak to that a little bit by telling us just a little bit what the beats were all about? Well, the uh, for, for my money and the way I got into this was that uh, I've always been a big fan of Jack Kerouac, and I, I've always thought that he was one of the most spiritual writers of the last 50 years or so. But my uh, my Buddhist and Catholic friends were not convinced, uh, mainly because they didn't read Kerouac, and the Kerouac they knew was from uh, caricatures of beatniks on television or in movies as sort of these wild hedonists. Maynard and yet, Yeah, and right, and uh, and yet you read Kerouac, and you know he's he's responding to people like Thomas Wolfe in the 30s. And he's trying to develop a new voice, uh, post-World War II voice, that is going to express the new sort of optimism of youth that the American experiment is going to continue now that the war is over into new, more glorious manifestations. And uh, so a lot of his, a lot of his works are, uh, you know, the, the original ones were Searches for America and, and its meaning in the in the uh, world and in the uh, cultural continuum of the West. And uh, he found a, a lot of inspiration in places that weren't normally thought of as inspirational, like uh, the hipsters and the hobos and his uh, unemployed friends. And so that's part of what that continuum is. And then the jazz musicians were a big inspiration for him. Um, and uh, he tried to develop a jazz style of writing in which uh, expression topped uh, uh, craft as a vehicle for uh, great art. Well, let's talk a little bit about jazz. Uh, up until that point in time, jazz, we, we had part of the continuum is the jazz age, where we had Hemingway and uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, the, the Lost Generation, and so that was post-World War I. Post-World War II, the jazz is different. We have bop, we have post-bop, and the uh, trying to match the style of writing with the syncopation of the musicians was uh, kind of a breakthrough. It, it gave the, uh, a certain degree of immediacy to the writing. Yes, the... Um, uh he wanted to, to capture, sort of like a jazz musician, uh, these sort of a, acute perceptions in the moment uh, and use improvisation to move around, like the, where, where the bebop uh, players would move around the melody line and try to get in sort of all the possibilities and through a virtuoso performance of their craft as well as their expression. And so he thought, well, I'd like to get that into 
my writing. I'd like to be able to uh, bring that kind of feeling and intensity and acute perception into prose. Um, and uh, that's what he tried to do. And but part of the problem he found is that he was so uh, had so many sensors in his own sensibility that he would hold back from expressing things that he actually felt or experienced uh, because he was sort of unsure if they were literary. And so he had to re-educate himself as to how to write a, a, um, a literature that was more direct to his actual experience. And that's where he came up with the Bob Spontaneous Prose strategy and techniques that he used. And, and the reason I bring uh, Kerouac up is that Kerouac is kind of, for me, he's kind of like the heart of the beat generation, and he inspired a lot of writers that followed in his footsteps and took this sort of new approach to literature, a more autobiographical, spiritual dimension to writing, uh, and took it in new directions uh, that he himself didn't live long enough to take it in new directions or... Um, didn't didn't have the interest to take it into as many different directions as it ended up taking and becoming a movement. Well, yes, and uh, feel free to disagree with me on this, but from yes, uh, right. my, from my observation on this, uh, it, it seemed that uh, the the movement was more or less taken over by individuals who were using it as a uh, excuse for self indulgence, hedonism licentiousness, libertarianism, and, uh, and Kerouac, you know, you actually quote him in, in your book, I am not a beatnik, I'm a Catholic. Yes, he, he, well, he inspired, I mean, Ginsburg's howl is uh, Ginsburg uh, trying to imitate Kerouac, because Ginsburg had read Kerouac's six unpublished novels, and in the end, in the because uh, he hadn't been published yet, and those uh, uh, those six novels hadn't been published, and so um, in the uh, inner uh, dedication to Howell, it says, you know, to Jack Kerouac, author of uh, six uh, unpublished novels published only in heaven, and so he was trying to show Kerouac that he could do a similar kind of thing, and that he understood what Kerouac was trying to do in his writing. But Kerouac never liked being associated as, uh, you know, named the king of the beatniks. That that galled him. He never saw himself as the leader of a political movement. He always saw himself as somebody writing about the soul of America and the heart of the country. And uh, and so as the as the um, beatniks sort of transformed into hippies. Kerouac became more and more disenchanted with being associated with that legacy. Right. He was always friends with he was always friends with these guys, but it was it was always ambivalent. Like he he appeared on the William F. Buckley show, and he invited uh, Allen Ginsberg to be to come on the show with him, you know, sit in the audience, and then he ended up insulting Allen from the stage. Uh, because he he was uh, drinking before the show, right? <laughs> so it was. And a, that, that's on YouTube. Kind of, so you, you can yeah, actually and, you uh, check that out. Yeah, and you can see the ambivalence he had. I mean, he you know they had a long friendship. They met in college, but they had gone in different, radically different directions. 
Right. I, well, I'm, I'm thinking when, when you mentioned that uh, Ginsburg dedicated Howell to Kerouac, the, it was more or less the, the same thing that uh, T.S. Eliot did to Ezra Pound in The Wasteland, Il Miglior Fabro, mm-hmm. which is also, uh, as you know, Dante said about Virgil. So uh, the, the, yeah. the greater, to the greater craftsman. So, yes. uh, and, and yeah. I, I would have to confess that uh, my leanings, literary, fall in the direction of Kerouac more so than, than Ginsburg. Yeah, yeah, the same with me. I mean, I, the, in this um, anthology, I, I, you know, I, I wanted to collect all of Kerouac's uh, and all the beat quotes. Uh, I have uh, uh, Ginsburg on Kerouac and, and the scholars on, on both of them and, and try to show the conversation that emerged and how central Kerouac's spirituality was to the whole uh, enterprise and how he, uh, part of Kerouac, you know, Kerouac wasn't beloved by the critics because he was he was too um, religious, too sentimental, too uh, heart on his sleeve uh, kind of writing. And at the time, in the in the late fifties, early sixties, the uh, the critics were all into complexity and uh, sort of Cold War strategic uh, analysis, and uh, and the academic critics all were enamored with irony. And so to get get somebody who wants his writing to to be more like jazz, a direct expression of his most powerful sentimental feelings about his love for people and the country and where he came from and Growing up and his his brother and all these relationships, um, it seemed it seemed to cut in the against the grain, and and that it, I think is part of uh, why he was disliked by the critics. But then pop culture picked him up as a hedonist, which he never was, and so he's kind of suffered from getting misread from both sides of the. Right. There. Well, there, there are many scenes in, in the novels where uh, the uh, literary avatars of, of his friends, Kerouac's friends, are sitting around and they're drinking wine, they're, they're doing amphetamines, they're driving. And you have the character of Neil Cassidy, who is uh, um, more or less a, a madman, and uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's almost disowned. By uh, the same yeah. paradise Kerouac character at the end of On the Road, a- as a cautionary tale: be careful, kids, because if you think that this is a uh, this shiftless lifestyle is for you, you are going to get burned badly by yeah. by the yeah. people that you yeah. consider to be your best friends. Yeah, and uh, it, it's interesting because the there's two sides to this. The um, the other side to this is that. He uh, he saw these hobos and these hipsters uh, as you know as terribly flawed, but at the same time as as people that were on these aborted spiritual quests that they 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 were on a spiritual quest they just weren't finding the means to fulfill themselves, and so he's he's chronicling this in terms of his own search for meaning and value in America and uh, the beauty of the country and these people, but at the same time being honest about, you know, where, 
you know, where they're not going and how they're not understanding the context of their own circumstances. I wanted to, I, I, when we were talking the other day, I wanted to read you the, uh, can I read you the uh, Carolyn Cassidy's oh, uh, letter? Please do. I have, I have my, my copy of your book open right now to that quote as well. So Yeah, this is a, this is a paragraph of uh, Carolyn Cassidy um, describing her view of what happened with, to Jack Kerouac. Um, okay, and, and please set it up by, by explaining who Carolyn Cassidy is to our listening yeah, audience. Yeah, Carolyn, Carolyn Cassidy was married to Neil Cassidy, and, and they had uh, uh, children, and Neil Cassidy um, uh, lived in California, and uh, Kerouac came out uh, to visit, and he, was, he had known Carolyn before they married. And so she sort of was... Uh, a witness and a, uh, a a person that was part of the beat generation as uh, one of the maybe taming influences on Neil Cassidy, if there was one. And then uh, after Neil died, um, she continued living in uh, Los Gatos, I think, and uh, ultimately wrote a couple of memoirs about her experiences uh, and she was always kind of an interesting person because she never liked the term beat. She thought it was sort of, you know, an advertising term made up by people trying to sort of um, make sense out of a very complicated uh, group of writers um, who had very different sensibilities. And uh, so she she never claimed that, that she was beat in any way. But But she has a very nice little paragraph here where she talks about this confusion we're talking about between Kerouac describing these rootless lives versus Kerouac advocating those rootless lives. And she says, um, young people felt Kerouac had given them a passport to selfish self-indulgence. They could now do anything that uh, that took their fancy. They abandoned homes and schools and threw the baby out with the bathwater. They didn't stop to think that Kerouac had no responsibilities and had to be free to roam in order to pursue his one aim, writing. He never meant to promote drug abuse, free love, or irresponsibility. When he was cast as the king of the beats and the father of the hippies, he was shattered. He thought he was promoting love and appreciation of life in all its forms, a joyous celebration and awe derived from that love with its ups and downs. He was basically very conventional, a gentleman of the old order who didn't swear in mixed company nor talk about sex except with his male cronies. He told me he was going to drink himself to death. I thought he was joking, but that's exactly what he did. Beautiful. I think that's a nice little summary. Yes, it it captures the contradictions there very nicely and the paradoxes of his life and the tragedy of his death. Exactly, exactly, and it, and it was very tragic and uh, very sad from 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 an individual who's uh, mostly well known as being the uh, the basis for the Minergy Krebs character and Dobie Gillis, yes, <laughs> and all the 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 squirrely little beatniks that you see in the American International pictures of the early nineteen sixties. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's, it's it's really really tragic and. Uh, it, yeah, and even what Truman Capote said about uh, Kerouac's writing was, he said it wasn't writing, it was typing. 
And uh, so he, he endured many, many uh, critical and cultural slings and arrows. But uh, again, I think that what most people who don't actually read the, the books or haven't read them since uh, high school or early college, they really do miss that there is a heavy spiritual element there. And it's not just a, a Buddhist element. It, it's also a, a heavy Judeo-Christian element of uh, care for one another and uh, just being there for, for other individuals to, to help them out. Yes, well, uh, um, uh, that's why I, I thought a little anthology with, with paragraph size excerpts um, so that people could dip in to, you know, the, the, rather than having to sit down and read um, Desolation Angels from the beginning to the end, uh, without the motivation that maybe that's not going to happen. But if you can sit down and, and read a couple of paragraphs and, and sort of see what the idea is, where, the, where Kerouac's coming from, the influence he had on other people, uh, and uh, how they maybe misread or, or read him and why he was so influential to this cadre of, of writers, uh, then you might be able to get into the real Kerouac and not the not the hedonistic mythic. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to. Re- I have another. I have another example here. This is from uh, Gary Snyder on page thirty-one in my book. If you want to get, and uh, he, he, this is you know many years later because um, uh, Gary Snyder's still alive and uh, he is often asked to give. Um, retrospective takes on the beats because he was one of Kerouac's friends and the hero of Dharma bums. Jeffy Ryder. Where Kerouac, yeah, where Kerouac discovers him as being somebody who was seriously studying Buddhism at a time that when Kerouac was just getting interested in it. And uh, this is Snyder's um, sort of summary of what, looking back on what the beats represented. In a way, one can see the beat generation as another aspect of the perpetual third force that's been moving through history with its own values of community, love, and freedom. It can be linked with ancient Essene communities, primitive Christianity, Gnostic communities, and the free spirit heresies of the Middle Ages, with early Chinese Taoism and both Zen and Shen Buddhism. The bold and moving... uh, uh, poetry and uh, visions of William Blake also belong to this same tradition. W- one of the things that um, Kerouac, one of the quotes that I, I don't know if I uh, have it in the book, but I, he he once he had he often quipped interesting little uh, aphorisms, and one of them was that um, the problem with the past is that it doesn't have a future. And what he what he meant by that was that. In, when you're living in the past, the past isn't just the past. The past is all, it's roads not taken. It's possibilities that are opening that inform the literature and the writing of the time. But as the the past, you know, turns into the the future, all you remember of the past are all the terrible things that actually did happen. All the missed opportunities, all the misreadings, uh, all the stereotypes, all all the revisionist history that has taken something that if you went back to the primary texts, if you went back to the sources, 
you would see as a completely different thing than how it's currently uh, being configured as part of the, of the contemporary story. And so the, going back to the primary text is a great way uh, to uh, reverse this kind of reduction of uh, great writers and great historical figures to their current stereotypes. So that's what I tried to do here is get it, get their own voices at the time that they were uh, writing to see what they themselves thought they were up to and what they wanted to achieve right. before we decided they didn't achieve it. And and, and I, I think that you're tremendously successful in, in that arena. I'm speaking with Robert Inchosti, who is Professor Emeritus of English at California State Polytechnic University, and he is the editor of a new book called Hard to Be a Saint in the City, The Spiritual Vision of the Beats, and it's published by Shambhala out of Boulder, Colorado. Robert, thank you so much for enlightening us today. Oh, well, thank, thanks, Bruce. Thanks uh, a lot. And for this week's Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you next week. And that concludes another episode. If you have questions for the Radio Free Acton team that you would like answered in future podcast segments, leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.